Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. We are going to continue talking about the big story of the day, and that is the expectation of more information on the border reopening, talking about vaccinated people being able to travel into the United States, vaccinated Canadians. We know that vaccinated Americans have been able to come to this side of the border, but we are expecting more details on that today. At this moment, U.S. President Joe Biden is speaking. At this point, he has not not addressed Canada. He has not talked about the border. He has been addressing the supply chain and talked about the ports on the West Coast, specifically California, going to 24-hour operations. But we are still waiting to see what the president of the U.S. is going to say, hopefully going to say, about the reopening of the border. As we wait for that, let's bring in Brian Calder. He is the president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. Brian, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for very much for reaching out to Point Roberts, uh, who's been uh, knocked down in the lockdown. <laughs> That's one way to put it, for sure. Uh, what's your response on hearing we are expecting to get more details today on the border reopening? Well, my feeling is it's never the wrong time to do the right thing. And they're finally approaching doing the right thing uh, by what we hear so far. Uh, I do have some concerns about... Uh, Canadians allowed to come back here, which we totally, totally welcome, and it's six months overdue as far as I'm from uh, concerned from the health sciences aspect as opposed to the military lockdown aspect. But what happens here in Point Roberts, as you well know more than most, that it's very unique in its uh, situation with its residents, property ownership, 75% Canadians, But with our 1.5 million visits a year, which is what we get, 1.5 million documented by the Transportation Authority of the USA, it's published there, uh, all borders are, and in 2018 and 2019, each year we got 1.5 million visits, which is astounding. And half of those are day trips. And so people come down, they golf, they go on their boat, they check their house, they shop, they get gas, they get parcel posts, and so forth. So half of the 1.5 million um, aren't going to come back if the Canadian government still requires within 72 hours a COVID test, notwithstanding they're double vaccinated, which we would insist on as well here in Point Roberts, And we've got an 87% effective rate on vaccination, so we're at the leading edge of that charge. Uh, And and so if they're required to produce that uh, vaccination, but not just the vaccination, a COVID test that had been done within 72 hours, it takes, when we do it here, Wednesdays and Sundays, it's shipped to Bellingham for analysis, and the report comes back. So it takes about a day and a half. So half your 72 hours is eaten up uh, by waiting for that test to come, results to come back. And so then you've got the, the remainder, a day and a half, to get to the border and produce your document, which costs you $180 U.S. as well. So those day trippers uh, that drive our economy here aren't going to do that. It just won't work for them because they'd have to spend three days here in order to uh, comply with those regulations. So what we need is to not have to have 
the Canadians that are going back to Canada, um, notwithstanding they're totally vaccinated, produce a, a test, a COVID test, within 72 hours. Right, because that's one of the big questions, that the changes that we're expecting to be announced, or at least clarified today, would say that Canadians who are fully vaccinated will be allowed into the United States. It seems like it's going to be some kind of random checking. It would be you uh, declare that at the border. You might get pulled aside and have to show documentation. You might not. But you wouldn't need a PCR test in that scenario. But then there is that issue of if you need one to get back into Canada, that's a very costly and time consuming test well and and you're absolutely right and inconvenient if you just wanted to come for a day trip uh, you just wouldn't do it um, so you know it, it's 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 not reciprocal with Canada at the moment we're, we're waiting for the president's uh, declaration but unless it's enjoined with a similar declaration by Trudeau in Ottawa uh, it's not going to, I mean, it's going to help us some. I'm not knocking the whole thing. I'm happy that they're doing something finally uh, in a progressive way and a safe way. But it's got to be reciprocal. It's like when um, the Canadian government allowed Point Roberts captives, I would call them, um, including me, to go into Delta, just Delta, without being um, tested and, and, you know, required, uh, have, uh, what do you call it, arrive can, a formal document. Uh, but it wasn't reciprocal. So what happened is our people here escaped, and I don't blame them for that at all, because they've been incarcerated for 18 months, a year and a half, uh, to go to, say, thrifties in, in Tawasson or, you know, and so forth. But that's all. They couldn't go to Surrey. They couldn't go to North Vancouver or whatever. But it still was a relief valve emotionally for many, many of us. And we applauded that. But it wasn't reciprocal. So those people went shopping, eroded what was little was left of our economic activity here, was eroded further. Right. The one grocery store in Point Roberts, that would have been another hit to them. Yeah. And I just heard yesterday, or read yesterday, that Nick Kaniski at the Reef has found it necessary to close uh, till the spring. He said he's closing for the winter, regretfully, uh, but he said there's just not enough business to... He's never closed. He's been open for over 40 years and seven days a week, and it's just decimated uh, his economy, uh, his bottom line, and he's found it necessary to close. It's, it's never happened before. Will it help at all then, even if what happens or what the announcement is, is that yes, the land border is going to reopen in early November to fully vaccinated Canadians, but if Canadians are still going to have to take that PCR test to come back to Canada, will it at least help people that perhaps have property in Point Roberts that haven't been there and the people that would have been planning to go and spend an extended period of time anyway? Yes, yes, it will. It'll it'll help people get to their places. Now, at this time of the year, they're starting to think winterizing, but they'll have to, as you point out, spend some days here, three to five days, maybe maybe even longer, to uh, facilitate that requirement of Canada that they have within the 72 hours. And, of course, it'll be an extra cost of, I think it's 160 to $180 U.S. to pay for that COVID test, and, and, you know, it's just, 
I don't, I don't think it's the science driving it anymore. I think it's the military mindset of one size fits all. We don't care if you're unique or not. You'll comply with the whole of the Mexican border and the Canadian border. There's no difference in them, and there's no difference in any cities along them. Well, of course there is. Uh, there's a much, in my argument, stronger bond between Canadians and Americans uh, um, historically and currently. And half of us here are dual citizens. So half our families on the Canadian side, half of the families on this side, and we've been deprived of seeing them for 18 months. Uh, won't it work? Would it work, though, because the similar to the rules of flying... Not that people are flying to Point Roberts, but if the testing rules are similar, could you not, as a Canadian, get your PCR test in Canada, come to Point Roberts, and as long as you're within the 72-hour period, you could use that same test to go back into Canada? Uh, I guess provided they're the same, um, like the WHO uh, lists which ones are approved and which ones they don't, and similarly, Canada and the U.S. recognize some but not all uh, of the vaccines. And so as long as those are copacetic and uh, on, on both countries' lists, I guess that could happen. But my f- also further fear is that people aren't going to read in depth what the actual rules are and come down here going, oh, good, I can get back to my place. I've been deprived of 18 months of going there, Point Roberts. They come down here and then the sudden realization when they hit the border, where's your COVID test card? And they go, my what? And it'll be bedlam. And there's also no clarification at this point as well. And I don't know how many people in Point Roberts this might impact, but there's no, there still has not been clarification for the Canadians who got mixed AstraZeneca and mRNA or the mixed vaccine schedule that's not acknowledged or not recognized in the States. Exactly, exactly. And so... Why aren't the two federal governments who talk about everything else from NAFTA to trade agreements to, you know, laws talking to each other and coming to similar conclusions? Uh, They seem to be isolated in their thinking and saying, well, these are our decisions and to heck with you. Well, why? I mean, we're so interdependent economically. I think 80% of Canada's economy goes through or is dependent on the USA. And so, you know, why aren't they working together? It is a good question, and we're hoping to get a bit more clarification and uh, some more answers today. Brian, we'll leave it there for now, though. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, I have a feeling we will talk again soon, but thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate you following up on Point Roberts always. Thank you. Thanks so much for being with us on this Wednesday afternoon. We will keep you updated if there are any changes or any clarifications when it comes to the land border between Canada and the United States opening up to Canadians. We are expecting and hoping more details on that today. But right now we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about something else. Flu season. Dr. Michael Curry joins me, clinical associate professor with the UBC Faculty of Medicine's Department of Emergency Medicine. Thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Jill. Uh, we didn't really see much, if any, flu last year, which I think maybe has some of us thinking, well, it'll probably be the same this year. But this is a warning out saying that actually this year's flu season could be a bit ugly. Why the change? 
So I think the big difference is uh, the other respiratory viruses that we normally see also disappeared last year. What we were doing to prevent COVID was very good at preventing other respiratory illnesses. But over the last six months, that's changed with uh, more social gatherings, more personal contact. At work, we're seeing a lot more of the regular cough and cold type infections. And we haven't seen the flu just yet, but we know with the bugs that the flu normally travels with, they've made a resurgence. Unfortunately, that means conditions for the flu to come back are also looking pretty good. Is it an indicator? I, I know even anecdotally talking to friends that have kids in school, they, they too have noticed that while there weren't a, as many colds last year, uh, there are, it seems like colds are back fast and furious this year as well. Indeed they are. You know, when a patient came to the emergency department six or seven months ago and they had respiratory tract symptoms, I didn't really even have to wait for the test. They almost for sure had COVID because that was the only thing that was really circulating. But in the last couple of months, sort of our usual suspects of infection, so adenovirus, rhinovirus, sort of the classic viruses that cause the common cold, they're back. And we know when those viruses are back, that's a warning that the conditions are right for other respiratory viruses like influenza to make a resurgence. So I'm hoping this year turns out like last year, but looking at the other viruses, I think there's a good chance flu is going to be back this year. So was it the the fact that we really weren't socializing all that much that kept the flu virus at bay? Or was it also the hand-washing and being aware of that and distancing and we're just not doing that as much? I think, it was the, I think it was a combination of all of them, Jill. And so social distancing was a chunk, a lot of school being online. We know school and daycares are great incubators for respiratory infections. But also the hand washing. And there's a little bit of controversy about this, but probably the wearing of masks has also reduced uh, the frequency of these infections. And when you say there's a bit of controversy, is that because of the, the, the difference of opinions or information whether things are airborne or not? Exactly. So the classic medical textbook teaching until, you know, quite recently was that most respiratory infections, and we assumed that that included COVID, were what we call droplet spread. So if somebody coughed or sneezed in your face and you were breathing in, you could, you could breathe it in that way. But these particles were believed to settle on the ground fairly quickly. And most of the way that we got them was dirty hands. Somebody coughed into their hand, they use a doorknob, you use the doorknob a couple of minutes later, and then you rub your face, you get infected. That was our classic thought. But there's been evidence over probably at least 10 years that influenza, an element of influenza is airborne. And definitely with COVID, it's been brought to our attention that our classic teaching that most of these infections are droplet is not correct with COVID. And I think that's causing us to relook back at some of these other respiratory viruses that Perhaps airborne spread is a bigger factor than we used to think. And when we talk about influenza, what about concerns that people have been staying away from others, have been cleaning all of the substances, haven't been exposed to germs nearly as much? Does that make us perhaps more susceptible if we do come in contact with the flu virus? The answer to that is a definite maybe. Um, If you are exposed to, say, rhinovirus on a regular low basis, it sort of reawakens your immune system and uh, sort of primes it to have a good response should you get infected by a more significant dose in the future. 
But for totally new pathogens, one your immune system isn't used to, it doesn't really make a difference. But for the old, for old infections that your body might have been aware of, the thought was if you had fleeting exposures to viruses your body may have been exposed to in the past, that trains your immune system to respond to them better. But for totally new pathogens, your body is still going to need to learn the hard way how to respond to them. How do you think people are going to deal with that then? Or, or what should people be looking for to know or have a better idea if they are feeling these symptoms to know, like you said, it used to be, or last year, you would hardly need to do the test and you would know, okay, this person has COVID-19, but how will people know the difference now, whether or not they have the flu or they have COVID? So the flu and COVID, there's a tremendous amount of overlap. There's a couple of features that might help distinguish but at the end of the day, it's up to a lab, um, and we really need to do the testing. So people use the term flu fairly loosely. Flu is a lot more than your average cold. It really knocks you for a loop. And so when you have the flu, you have the aches, the pains, the gastrointestinal symptoms, so vomiting and diarrhea. You know, you have a cold, but it's the worst cold of your life. And COVID is very much like that as well. You do get the respiratory symptoms with COVID, but it's this general malaise, the shortness of breath, and this feeling incredibly sick that you do get with COVID. So both of the flu and the COVID, they overlap a lot, and it's really up to lab testing for us to figure out the difference. I, it's when you talk about the flu too. I mean, I, I know having uh, talking to people who have had it recently, talking about the fact that you, you just don't want to get out of bed. It kind of knocks you out. But is there an importance then? If, if somebody, if you're sure you you have the flu or you recognize it because you've had the flu before, should you still go and get tested for COVID? I think so. The difference the difference in how it presents is is almost impossible to judge on that basis, and so. If you are experiencing respiratory-type symptoms, the first thing we recommend is that you self-isolate. Even if it's not COVID, if it's not the flu, you've got something that you can infect other people with. Stay home. If it feels like a mild cold, something you felt before, then you're probably okay to treat at home. We currently do not have great treatments for either the flu or COVID-19 for people with mild symptoms. But if you are feeling like this is way worse than I've experienced before, particularly if you're feeling any shortness of breath, then you need to see a doctor. Uh, let's talk a little bit as well about flu shots. So what, how important is it then if we are going to see a resurgence of the flu or we're anticipating that, how important do you think it is for people to get the flu shot? I think it's tremendously important this year. One is the flu shot, if it matches to the circulating strain, and that's the, big, that's the big caveat. If it matches to the circulating strain, it offers very good protection to yourself, but also protection to other people that you can't spread it to, and also to the healthcare system. The healthcare system is really stretched right now with COVID-19. We're doing a bit better here in Vancouver than some other parts of the country, but uh, we're pretty stretched. And normally during a regular flu season, that really stretches us as well. So that combination of both COVID and the flu hitting the healthcare system simultaneously is going to put a lot of stress on the system and it's going to be very difficult for the system to adapt to both of them at the same time. And you say if it matches, when will we know if it matches? <laughs> the million dollar question, Jill. And the answer is probably next April or May after the fact. The problem with the flu as we're learning about COVID-19 
is viruses mutate. Now, the flu virus is a much more unstable virus than COVID-19. What that means is it changes more frequently and more quickly. So the flu, the H1N1 flu that circulates now is not the same H1N1 flu that caused the 1918 pandemic, although there are a lot of similarities. But uh, it changes. And as it changes, the ability of the vaccine to protect it also changes. So with the flu shot, we're making a guess about 18 months in advance because it takes a long time to make billions of doses of a vaccine about what flu strain is going to be circulating. So if we match the flu strain in the vaccine to the flu strain that's actually out there, it works really well. Unfortunately, we don't always get it right every year, and we generally figure that out in hindsight. Which has got to make it a bit more difficult to get buy-in or to get people to, to roll up that sleeve and get another shot when it's a bit of a crapshoot. I've definitely heard countless times in my career when I advise people to get a flu shot. I got the flu shot last year and I still got the flu. And yeah, that happens. Um, we know with COVID is generally the shot has very good protection. The COVID virus also mutates, but it doesn't mutate as quickly as the flu, thankfully. And so the COVID vaccine is still offering extremely good protection. The flu shot in a good year is in the same range as the COVID vaccine for protection. But again, it's all about trying to anticipate about 18 months in advance what's going to be out there in the wild uh, versus what we expect it to have been when we made these flu shots 18 months ago. And so it is a little bit of a gamble. But on the whole, over the course of time, if you get a flu shot for 10 years, you're still going to have good benefit for five, six, seven of those years out of the 10 years. And that benefits not just to yourself. It's a benefit to the people you could potentially spread it to and to the healthcare system. And Dr. Curry, one other question, and this has come up a few times, and I know health officials have said it's perfectly safe to get a flu shot and a COVID-19 vaccination at the same time or in within a close time period. But people do have concerns thinking, does that not add extra stress? What if I have a really bad reaction to one of the shots and are concerned or perhaps even hesitant to get them together? What is the your medical advice on that? So um, I was always, when we first came out with the COVID vaccine, out of an abundance of caution, too much caution in my mind, we did recommend you don't get any other immunizations within a couple of weeks before or after. The the basis of this seems to be the belief that we stress out the immune system too much. But the flaw in that thinking is we're not giving our immune system enough credit. Every breath in you take, we're breathing in dust, we're breathing in small dust, breathing in allergens, we're breathing in bacteria, we're breathing in mold. Sort of disgusting if you think about it too much. But our immune system is responding to thousands, if not millions of things every day. So in a vaccine like the COVID vaccine, there's basically one antigen in there. That one antigen your immune system deals with and learns, learns from, and you develop immunity through COVID-19 through that. You are responding to tens of thousands, again, if not millions of things every day. You're bringing in way more allergens to your body or way more different types of allergens to your body with a good breath of allegedly fresh air than you are with a vaccination. Your immune system is incredibly adaptive and it's incredibly busy all of the time. All right. Well, good advice and uh, letting people know as we get closer to the flu season. Dr. Michael Curry, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time today. A pleasure as always, Jill.
Well, we have spent a good portion of the show today talking about the land border between the United States and Canada. We were hoping for an update on what was sent out from the Department of Homeland Security in the United States yesterday. We did learn from the Secretary of Homeland Security. This is a direct quote in alignment with the new international air travel system that will be implemented in November. We will begin allowing travelers from Mexico and Canada who are fully vaccinated for COVID-19 to enter the United States for non-essential purposes, including to visit friends and family or for tourism via land and ferry border crossings. So that got a lot of attention to for people that have been waiting patiently for whatever reason, whether it's to see friends, to see family, for tourism reasons, going into the United States across a land border. What we don't know at this point is exactly what the rules are going to be, what is going to be required, and if there's going to be any change to the PCR test requirement for Canadians when coming back into this country. But let's take a look and find out the reaction from someone who's been on the program a couple of times before. Gary Holowaychuk, president of West Coast Duty Free, is joining us once again. Gary, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Jill, thanks for having me. And what a beautiful day it is. You notice if you look hard, you can see the sun. (laughs) That is a good thing. A definite good (laughs) thing. Uh, What is your reaction to hearing this news? Oh, it's relief, and I'm kind of walking around in a cloud. It was kind of came unexpected, and uh, although we've been banging on doors nonstop for months and months and months, it just this just all of a sudden came out of the blue, and what a wonderful surprise. Do you know, or have you even heard from anybody in the know any more of the details? Because at this point, we still don't know specific dates or requirements for people that will be accessing the United States at the land border. No, at this point, my knowledge is probably almost the same as yours. Uh, They're saying early November. And at this point, we're hearing no testing is going to be required to go into the United States. Right. So then I guess there would be the issue of Canadians coming back would still be required to have that PCR test coming back into Canada. At this point, but uh, we and uh, our association and we're hoping that uh, virtually every Canadian jumps on the bandwagon and starts lobbying to get rid of that silly test. I mean, guess what? We're fully vaccinated. Let's start moving forward. How are things going for you? I know we talked to you a few months ago when uh, you talked about the shelves basically being bare. I know you donated a a lot of supplies that you didn't sell, but uh, things were pretty dire at that point. Yeah, you know, it hasn't hasn't gotten a lot better yet. Uh, You know, we are seeing a few Americans coming through. Our Sunday business is relatively good. I mean, it's still less than 10% of what it was you know, uh, in 2019, but it's compared to what we've been seeing, it's relatively good. Um, Our our weekday business is quiet, uh, but I guess with the Canadians, we're expecting that the pent-up demand is going to be horrendous. Uh, Kind of, let's, let's bring back the roaring 20s. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, from the people that, that are still coming in, uh, is it essential travelers that are going through or who are you, uh, who are the customers that you're still seeing throughout this pandemic? 
what we're seeing now more so are the American tourists. And uh, a bunch of them can get the uh, uh, PVR test very cheap or, or, or virtually free. So if they're relatively close to the border, there's no timeline, they can go and get the test when they get their results. They come up and they spend a, a week, a, a few days, whatever. And those are the travelers we're seeing right now. And it's nice to see them, except it's, the numbers are still very, very small. Yeah, I would imagine that would make a difference. I know some of the uh, drugstores and pharmacies in in the states, especially close to the border, uh, have drive-through testing stations. And like you said, in a lot of cases, there's no charge for them, which I would imagine entices people or makes it even a little bit easier uh, to plan those trips. Yeah, it is, except that uh, those those uh, drugstores are getting very busy and uh, they're promising results in two to five days, which doesn't help anybody if they have to have it in three days to cross the border. No, that's, uh, so, that's very true. Very true. You know, that test, that test is, is pr- a pretty hard test and it's an expensive test if you have to pay for it. And I would imagine, too, so that's still going to be one of the issues of, for Canadians because there seems to be some discrepancy. Some people are saying that by taking short trips to the United States flying, they've been able to use the same test that they got in Canada and to use it to come back. We had a travel expert earlier saying that there's no guarantee that that would work. The airline could stop you from coming back on the plane and force you to get another test at your own cost. So that's still, like you said, that test itself is still likely going to be a big deterrent if it remains in place. Yeah, it's you know Canada has that seventy-two hours from from the time you take the test. So that scenario is extremely onerous, and with the as these testing places get busier, it's just going to be harder and harder to ensure that you get your results fast enough to get across the border. Uh, Will things look different at your store as far as when the border opens up? We are going to see more people. Will they notice, will things be different as far as capacity levels or what things look like in the store? You know, I'm not expecting an awful lot of that. Everybody that comes through is going to have to be uh, vaccinated, double shot. Uh, So I'm not expecting that we're going to have a lot of a lot of uh, issues with social distancing. I think, again, we're not expecting to go be absolutely crazy busy either. Uh, it would be nice to have lineups at the door and hold people back. I mean, that would be a be a first in a long, long, long time. But uh, whatever it is, we welcome it. And how were you able to to keep the doors open? I know we talked to you about this before, but I know you'd you'd hoped too that maybe there would be a relaxation in the license that allows you to be a duty free store. But it it must have been very difficult to, to keep to keep the lights on with that amount of customers. Yeah, it's been it's been very very difficult. Um, we have been borrowing and borrowing and borrowing there has not been there has been the occasional day that we've made a couple of dollars but 95 percent of the days we lose money and we've done that for 20 months so it's been it's been a long long haul and the recuperation is going to be a long time too
Uh, if things do go ahead, we, we heard the date of November 1st being mentioned. There still hasn't been 100% confirmation that November 1st is the day that the land border is going to reopen. But if it does, how long will it take you then to kind of restock shelves and to get things back up to a, to a level even somewhat similar to what it was before? We will be, we are ready to go. The only, the only thing that's going to be missing in our store will be some confectionery, some of our European chocolates and, and stuff we have on order, but they're on containers on the water and, you know, they just take time to get. Uh, but we will have, uh, that's the only category where we will be hurting is in the confectionery segment. Otherwise, everything else is is ready to go, and uh, we could we could open up if they if they said tomorrow we'd be wide open tomorrow. Well, that is that is good news. Um, are you facing the the same concerns with the supply chain? I know uh, U.S. President Joe Biden addressed this earlier. We've talked to Canadian shippers as well with concerns of getting supply. Is that something that you're concerned about as well? You know, at this point, we really haven't had the time to. To worry about that. I mean, it's really being get the border open. I'm sure it's going to be an issue down the road. But from what I'm hearing from my suppliers, at this point, we have we have lots of inventory available. Uh, I'm just seeing uh, a statement that was put out by uh, Governor Jay Inslee in uh, Washington, uh, issuing a statement kind of reiterating what we heard from some of the the other representatives as well, uh, saying that Washingtonians are ready to welcome Canadians back traveling by land and that he's very pleased to hear the reports that this is likely finally going to happen in early November. Uh, Does that give give you a bit more optimism that this will, in fact, be in place very early in November? Yeah, everything that I'm hearing, they're going to run it side by side with the airlines opening up, which was scheduled to be November 5th or 6th. Um, I don't know, like, in in all honesty, why not tomorrow? (laughs) I mean, if you're fully vaccinated, what difference does it make if you wait another 10 days? Um, But I'm sure they've got to get the right memos out to each uh, each customs uh, <clears throat> department. So, you know, the earlier, the sooner, the better, the happier we're all going to be. All right. We will leave it there. Uh, Gary, thank you so much. Always nice to have you on the program. Hopefully next time we talk, it will be talking about the reopening and more details about that and what that means for you. But thanks so much for making the time for us today. Okay, Jill. Nice talking to you too. You have a good day. And you find dogs to be calming. You are not alone. And that is why we see so many dogs become part of therapy programs. And that has become even more in need as people have been encouraged to get vaccinated against COVID-19 and maybe are a little hesitant and have a bit of needle phobia or maybe a lot of needle phobia. Well, on Vancouver Island, there is at least one therapy dog who is helping people calm down a bit to maybe be distracted a bit when getting that shot. So we wanted to learn more about just how much dogs can help when it comes to being really nervous about this kind of thing. Registered professional counsellor Wendy Blancher is with us now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for being with us. 
Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, can you talk a little bit about therapy dogs and how they can play into people getting vaccinated and really overcoming or dealing with uh, any level, really, of needle phobia? Yeah, no problem. Um, actually, therapy dogs are uh, used, it's an evidence-based practice, um, so very well documented in terms of its being effective. But even just the act of petting uh, therapy animal um, reduces your uh, production of stress hormones and increases your production of uh, mood-boosting hormones. So, you know, it's it's not just the petting, though. I mean, there's a lot more to it. The therapy dogs are fairly intuitive, and so, you know, they will nudge you or lick your hand or do things that are distracting. So to get your mind off of what's going on, and then, you know, being able to just go forward with that comfort of the dog available. Uh, interesting. So dogs can tell or, or do they react differently then? Do they pick up uh, on the level of stress somebody might be feeling? Uh, well, they're, yeah, they're, they're trained to, to have uh, uh, different tools in their toolbox, so to speak. So they, they can try different methods to, to calm a person. So they might just sit beside a person or... You know, and then that's an invitation to touch the dog or pet. But if if there is a higher level of, of anxiety, they might, you know, nudge or lick or, or do something to get your attention to, you know, and then, you know, that's an, another invitation, more aggressive, I guess, in, invitation to pet the dog. So, you know, the whole idea is that a dog is going to be um, interacting with someone who is nervous and, you know, using the strategies that they have in the toolbox in order to help calm the person down. Uh, I know this has been happening in a Vernon clinic. Uh, a 10-year-old, a very handsome Labradoodle named Cooper has been helping people through this and making it a bit more easy for people that are really nervous about this. So clearly it shows, and I'm sure Cooper's not the only one, though, that's making a difference here. Yeah, I wish it would happen more often, actually. I... I uh, uh, saw Cooper on the news as well. And uh, I mean, so cute and cuddly, who wouldn't be calm just by having him present, quite honestly. <laughs> and does it help as well? Like you say, it's it's the different levels. Are there other things that people will do then? I, I mean, it might even be that somebody's so excited about seeing the dog, they've, they're making the decision to come in and that specific clinic they'll go to for the vaccination. Are there other things, though, that people uh, will do as well in that maybe you're beside the dog, but then maybe you also do breathing exercises and that's kind of part of a bigger way of, of calming down and getting through if you are afraid or nervous? That's right. And, you know, with parents taking kids, uh, now that that we're at this stage in the vaccination process, there's lots of little tricks that parents can use to help their children calm down. And, you know, breathing with a child, but also using strategies like uh, hot chocolate breathing. And that's a technique where you pretend you have a cup of hot chocolate. And so you're breathing to as if you were going to cool the hot chocolate down when you exhale your lips are pursed a little bit, so that slows the exhale, which is much more calming than just breathing in and out. So, you know, there's, it, it pays to do a little bit of research, you know, if you're concerned about ways to calm your child. And the other thing, too, is to validate their feelings. Yes, they are going to be uh, nervous, 
but, you know, not to catastrophize and say, I know you're afraid and, you know, to amp them up. But using words like nervous and a little anxious is, you know, less, less alarming to a child than being afraid. So validate those feelings, but make sure that you're not feeding into them too much. Uh, do you find, too, that people uh, tend to, especially I, I would imagine if it's been a while since you've had a vaccination or a shot to, in any case, that you tend to, if you do have, are nervous or, or you have a phobia, people do tend to work it up in their minds as it's thinking it's going to be much worse than it actually is? Well, that's exactly what we do. Um, and, and you know, it, it's, they're cognitive distortions. We all employ cognitive distortions occasionally, but especially when we're in really kind of higher stress situations that our, our minds get carried away and we can really, really build it up and validate um, our fears with distortion on top of distortion. So, you know, when you notice that you're immediately, when you start getting um anxious or you feel a a physical response, right? Because that's what happens. Um, Then you think, okay, what am I thinking right now? Let's back up and do some exercises, some breathing, um, maybe have uh, a saying in your head, even though I'm afraid right now, I know that uh, this is going to be over quickly or something that you repeat to distract yourself from having those catastrophic um, thoughts ruminating in your head over and over and I would imagine that's also where a therapy dog could come in again as that distraction. You've got this, as long as you're a dog person and you don't also have a phobia of dogs, you've got this beautiful creature yeah. in front of you that just wants to kind of snuggle up with you. That's right. Yeah. And so, you know, when we are in the thick of of anxiety, it's very difficult sometimes to stop ourselves because you know, we are thinking with an emotional part of our brain that is pretty hard to turn off. It's a pretty strong part of our brain. And so that's where a therapy animal, you know, just a a nudge or a lick, it's like, hey, look at me, you know, and that is the distraction. So the brain can kind of slow down a little bit, focus on something else temporarily and maybe get it back together, right? Right. Uh, when you talk about the the actual impact on, on the mood-boosting chemicals and, and, come in and calming down the stress, uh, is it different from person to person as far as how much somebody reacts, say, to an animal or to petting, having an actual touching a dog? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, there's been plenty of studies. So, I mean, there's a range, right? Statistically, there's going to be a range of how people are affected. Um, you mentioned that people that are not comfortable around dogs, maybe they've had a, a bad experience in their past. Certainly a therapy dog would not be the animal of choice for them to, you know, provide comfort. So, yeah, there, there definitely is a range. But overall, um, you know, it, it's going to have some beneficial effect as long as, as you said, they're not afraid of dogs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What about even things like holding on to a stress ball or, or I guess, does it work if it's whatever works as a distraction that you're comfortable with? I would say so. You know, I'm, people use all sorts of things. Some people tap, some people, you know, count their fingers. Some people, um, 
do all, you know, whatever, whatever works for them. And I've had, I've had people that kind of rub their hands and, or do the butterfly tap. You know, it's kind of putting your hands across your chest and tapping either shoulder, um, which is reminiscent of a hug, but also a bit of a distraction. Um, so, you know, people do whatever they need to do in a stressful situation. We all have coping strategies. And if it's been successful for you in the past, absolutely use it if you're in a stressful situation, such as getting a vaccination. All right. Wendy Blanchard, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was my pleasure.